Henrik, you want to know what the flick lap is? I most definitely would like to know what the flick lap is. Taking into consideration that this is, what, the 26th episode that we are doing. So at this point, it might be a good idea if you could explain to me what the flick lap is. It is a filthy flick murderer who killed at least 20 episodes in the interwebs. Flicks we all knew. It drove us crazy when we didn't know what it was. You know, Henrik got famous and Kari got fat, but somebody forgot to sign the lap non-disclosure agreement. And the word was free, just like that. We could say anything we wanted. And therefore, I should grab that bottle and veg out with you to avoid any consequences henceforth by just getting good and loaded. That's fine with you? Uh, that's fine with me. Take into consideration that we are tackling that tonight's film, which is Nightmare on Elm Street. It, however, might not be good with our listeners. After seeing that, we get a scot away free here saying what we want on non-disclosure agreements might just grab themselves a few molotovs and come after us. Indeed. Well, after the flamethrowers have subsided... The Flick Lab is indeed a weekly film podcast, and it's coming from a media professional and master of arts in the making. We watch anything and everything so far. We watched international cinema, thrillers, horrors, drama, comedy, romance, action. We we haven't watched porn yet. I was just about I was just about to say that we have watched everything in between. We're missing just one genre here. And I have tried, our listeners, I have tried back in the Halloween marathon that we made here. You know, I, I still did press for Halloween-themed porn. <laughs> well, you know, I have jumped into this subject a little bit. And it seems that time and time again, the opening of Misty Beethoven is listed as the best porn film of all time. <laughs> now, Now, since we are such an open and very broad movie podcast. I think it would be really just plain honestly appropriate to also approach this and how it psychologically affects us. And if there are actually any good movies with porn. I, I you know, outside of this recording, I can share my browsing history with you. Okay. If you promise to stay quiet about what you are going to see. It's a little hard when you are hosting a podcast. <laughs> well, so am I. So am I. <laughs> Opening the web browser as we speak. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, it would be it would be good to start with the synopsis. My synopsis is that there are teenagers that see nightmares of a guy who actually kills them in their dreams. That's it. That's pretty accurate. Unless you want to get, like, thorough, something you want to see on the covers. But, well, you can always up the font size. That could work. Could still work. 
Why did we choose this one? I don't know. You forced this one on us. Like God knows so many films before it. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for more forcing from you. <laughs> well, the Apocalypse Now episode was kind of a nightmare in itself to go through. Heaviest episode so far. Most definitely. And I'm still feeling the after effects. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Listeners beat a charge about this, but maybe we should have taken a longer break between <laughs> the episodes after doing Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Hey, at, at least we're doing something familiar here. Yeah. At least more familiar than, I believe, Apocalypse or overall easier to do. Yeah. Hopefully that, yeah, at least. But after Apocalypse, I guess we both kind of felt that. As for the next episode, we should tackle something a little bit easier and a little bit lighter for the both of us. And in that sense, you know, what would be more easier and lighter than a film which has the psychological elements and a bunch of dead teenagers? And a child molester badly burned chasing teenagers with uh, knives for fingers. Still? Still? At this point of the franchise, Kruger is just your friendly neighborhood child killer. The whole molestation stuff is just up and coming on this franchise. There is some very sexual thematics here. Some, But it doesn't go perhaps over the edge. Maybe not as much over the edge as they initially planned. But you can see more of that in these sequels. Which will not follow after this episode. Just that we're clear with our listeners. <laughs> Maybe later. Yeah, you can also see kind of the growing budgets in the sequels after this film. Indeed you can. I think the peak was around Rennie Harlin's attempt. To me it was always the third one, Dream Warriors. I'm, uh, I'm, I... Jesus, yeah, I'm purely talking about budget-wise. Where was the biggest budget other than oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in that sense, yeah. Yeah. Most likely could have been easily been maybe Harleen. I, I don't remember what was the budget on the last one. Not meaning the Freddy's death, but New Nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, but I would say that this is essential cinema tonight because of its major influence on the horror genre. And it is one of the most respected films in its genre. Also, it's great to have an episode without struggles of existentialism or existence during the episode, which we had the last time. <laughs> yeah, uh, ho hopefully we can avoid all of that this time around. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, last time we ended up making heartfelt confessions about the military times. Who knows? Maybe we start sharing our intimate nightmares here on this episode. Hmm, yeah, good idea there. Well, but uh, no, it's not. It, it, it it's a terrible idea, and you should take no pointers from that idea. Well, you may be right as well on that because if we start to talk about dreams, you know what are dreams? Well, according to science, dreams are images and imagery, thoughts, sounds, voices, and subjective sensations experienced when we sleep. That's the short version, and. What can they also be about? Somebody said that they always have 
something sexual about them. So maybe it's a good idea that whenever I saw some dreams about my colleagues or something, it's not a basically a good idea to mention, oh, last time I saw you in a dream. Because sometimes people give you the, you know, the eyebrow, like, okay, <laughs> don't do that. I try to avoid it. The best of my capabilities. Yeah. Although I must confess that I'm a bit hesitant on the theory that every single dream you have has a sexual dimension. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. That kind of sounds to my dilettantic ear like taking the Freud too far on this subject. There is a certain stage in sleep called REM or R-E-M. This is like the deepest stage of sleep cycle. Also the deepest stage in hipster rock bands. <laughs> Nailed that one. But it's uh, the stage where you will probably have the actual dream and dreams that you can remember. It makes about 20 to 25% of the sleep cycle in adults and at least. And it can come and go and then come back again. Some stages of REM also can last as long as 30 minutes at a time. But in the dream time, it can be totally a different experience. For for example, that 30 minutes can feel in the dream something like several hours. So there's a different sense of you know time in your dreams. It has been studied extensively, dreams I mean. But the more I duck into it, it seems like it's actually like the doctor says in this movie that we don't still actually quite know what dreams are. As poetic and funny as it sounds, it is actually true, it seems. Henrik, do you sometimes feel the deja vu? Like like you could swear something like this had happened previously, whatever it was, but you just can't remember how exactly or where it happened. Basically, my everyday life is a constant stage of deja vu. Especially when I'm meeting with authorities or the police, who once again make the completely idiotic and unrealistic comment that I, according to them, have once again done something, which I completely denounce already at this stage on this episode. I didn't know you're such good friends with the local police force. <laughs> well, what, what, what can I say? I'm friends with everyone. <laughs> It's it's most useful in this podcast where we have police stations and lieutenants. So maybe that's useful. God, I'm good at picking co-hosts. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, at least I draw in the audience. <laughs> Our faithful, faithful listeners are like, definitely not the cops. <laughs> Once again. Once again. It may also be that the dreams kind of scramble with our memory of what actually took place in reality. I haven't actually paid a lot of attention to this, but yeah, when I think about it, you have these sudden moments of you think you've done something or you get that weird feeling for a split second. So like, this feels so familiar, but I have no idea how. But somewhere this has happened, somehow. Or it reminds you of something completely else that probably has nothing to do with the situation per se, but it just happens like that. It's weird. It's weird. 
Well, then dreams have also been interpreted in cultures simply as some kind of a reflection of your desires, as I mentioned previously, or it's thought that it's the soul leaving the body into a different dimension or world for the duration of the dream, sometimes providing divine messages. And then you do what you see in the dream, or somebody tells you to do in this dream to tell you something. Of Yeah, naturally, of course, the person, the God being that you believed in in the first place, then of course it's going to, going to come into your dreams, then you do what you hear the deity command you to do there, and then you do it, and then you get yourself more divine energy or something. Going kind of metaphysical there. <laughs> All right, let's move on. What's your experience with this film, Henrik? Uh, I guess this is my fourth time seeing this one. The first one in the franchise. Uh, to me, the original Nightmare on Elm Street never was the getting into the franchise point. It was the actually the second film okay. on the franchise, which was my first experience with the franchise. Yeah, the, the homosexuals on Elm Street. The gay nightmare on Elm Street, as it's also known. <laughs> Did you see it from VHS or TV or? Actually, I did see it from the VHS tape. Back in the day when I was way too young to actually watch the film at all. But once again, thanks a bunch to my ever-corrupting presence of my parents and my father, who, against all better judgment, went on and rented it from their local video store since I had asked for it. <laughs> and... Yeah, boy, that was an experience, I can tell you that much. <laughs> I, I, back in the day, I couldn't, I couldn't fucking understand half of what I was seeing. And, well, <laughs> of course, my, my father, even though it was supposed to be completely impossible in Finland, and he had still, without knowing what he was actually getting into, he had managed accidentally find the uncut version of the film, which had all the violence and the extremely graphic Freddy clawing his way out of the guy's stomach scene at the end of the film, and you know, all, all that delicious violence, which the censorship authorities were trying to keep out of the finished version of the film. It was, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the dude goes to, I guess, to his bully's house to look for help, and then there is some not at all homoerotic tensions between the two. <laughs> and then during the pool party, the main hero is, is inside upstairs in a living room. They are having a pool party outside, and credits us close his way out of the dude's stomach. Yeah. Extremely graphically. I do not remember that there would have been anything cut in the version when I saw NOES 2 from television in probably 97 or 98, so I was 11 or 12 myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Childhood yeah. well spent. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Looking back at it, I mean, great memories after the initial shock and shaking <laughs> to your core. <laughs> yeah. And then years after that experience, you finally actually get to see the first film in the franchise. Uh, and then you can go, what the fuck is this toned down violence in the film? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting viewpoint. Yeah, I first saw this when it came from the Finnish broadcaster MTV3, I believe, in the late 90s. And I watched it all alone, lights off, at my mom's. And I recorded the first one and the second one to VHS. First one and the second one at the time. They they both blew me away. It was terrifying. And sometime after that, I got the new Nightmare on VHS. <laughs> But uh, it was mostly a disappointment even then. Maybe I was 14. Don't know. How the fuck is new Nightmare a disappointment? <sighs> there are some things that irritate me. But there are also things to like. But, uh, yeah, we have to talk about this in, in another episode so I can compartmentalize my thoughts. But I do remember the crappy makeup for Freddy. I remember I didn't like the sliding down the tunnel under the sheets to Freddy's lair and that Freddy's lair was a joke. Well, uh, anyway, later in life I bought the DVD set with all the Nightmare movies and it was in the early 2000s. When I got to see the rest of the series via this set. And I, I will tell you right now that I really hated four, five and six. And didn't I also didn't like part three. They lost the essence of Freddy Krueger. Because they they pushed the humor a little bit too far. They made him a caricature of himself, kind of a joke, and not scary in a way. They also pushed a little bit boundaries. So much that this film didn't have any rules anymore. It could be anything. Anything can happen. In Nightmare 3, the characters were suddenly able to do whatever they wanted. That's of course kind of how dreams operate. But a horror film still should follow some limits in order to be, you know, appealing. When we reach the point of the film when you have a Harry Potter fighting this phallic worm Freddy eating lead characters and a supersized Freddy controlling his victim with puppet wires about is it the church it's not scary and sorry it just didn't work for me okay because i have actually completely opposite experience with these films to me the third one is best in the oh. franchise start with the new nightmare but new nightmare is own beast since it's basically a meta narrative about forces behind film industry but The film that really, in my opinion, loses all of its steam and completely goes stitch up in the third act actually is the very first and the original Nightmare on Elm Street. This film actually, in my opinion, commits all the sins that you have counted in happening in part three. Hmm. Well, I can say that I, I don't like how the first movie ends because there are kind of several endings and... Some of them are unnecessary. It could have been more simple, but I do like the resolution. I, I just hate the fucking resolution. Like, Jesus Christ. Okay, we get to that. But um, when it comes to number three, in fact, I reckon, seriously, Nightmare 2 to be far superior, even with all the problems that it has. 
in the faulty writing and so forth. Well, at least Freddy is still extremely scary in Nightmare 2. And that's the only thing that actually works in Nightmare 2. It was, I admit that it was kind of a my type of Nightmare film, of course, again, with all the gay references and Mark Patton uh, is extremely handsome, blah, blah, blah. There are other things as well. There are problems in this film, but even with the gay references out of the picture, and maybe you can change all the lead characters, I would still choose Nightmare 2 over Nightmare 3 any day. Because it has to do Jesus with... fucking Christ. Yeah. It has to do with my general dislike of excessive fantasy elements like Harry Potter, and they break so many rules in the series. If Nightmare 3 still had something going for it, then it falls all apart in the next ones. Anything made after this is not worth even talking about in this podcast, but that's just just my opinion, man. I still would actually counteract, even in the later parts, following the part 3. 4, I think, was okay. The fifth one... The fifth one is is Stink. quite the downhill slope, to be honest. Massive stinker. Mm-hmm. But still something you can watch. Still something you can watch. The fucking sixth one is completely <laughs> atrocious and... Yeah. Great yeah. graphics. Great graphics. No, I'm playing with power. Yeah, the infamous video game scene where Freddy is a complete character of himself. There is no moody lighting. They are not covering him in any kind of lighting. He's in plain light playing video games with, with their victims. But we can talk about the rest of the shit shows in this podcast. I'm just saying I'm not particularly interested. And we're not going to do it right after this one. Uh, these are some stunningly bad sequels. Well, history time. Welcome to your history class of the Flea Club. The film's idea came from Wes Craven from LA Times articles about people dying during their nightmares. The Elm Street is a very popular name for a street, so this was kind of like, I guess, the John Smith of streets. But Elm Street was also a street which was close to a place where Wes Craven was working as a teacher. It was also the street where Kennedy was shot. There was considerable trouble to get this movie to a studio because everybody kept rejecting this project. Uh, the idea of Freddy came from a guy in alleyway that was on purpose terrifying young Wes Craven. Uh, David Warner was originally cast as Freddy. Maybe Henrik knows David Warner. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Warner is something that is kind of a go-to guy, have been in bunch of different movie genres, from B-movies like Beastmaster series to actually something high-end like Titanic. And in between have done bunch of horror, some sci-fi even a couple of video games. Yeah, this is an extremely familiar face. Definitely from Titanic, but this is uh, knocking from some other places all over. Yeah, once again, one of those actors who pretty much have, during his career, he has done basically everything there is to do, one way or the another. He was also in Scream 2. Okay. Yeah, he was... Indeed, originally cast as Freddy, and 
he quit the project himself, in his own words, due to some prior commitments and timing issues. So this gave way for Robert England, who got a contact from his manager that there would be this one a Nightmare on Elm Street project, and he went to audition. And at the end, I think everybody agreed that he was a better choice. I think the crew wasn't really convinced with David Warner being the Freddy. They were looking for somebody who is a little bit of an older guy. But perhaps there was this kind of an older guy's sweetness aspect about Warner. And, well, perhaps it was their luck that he turned down the project. At least it was England's luck since this basically is the movie which made Robert's entire career and made him the icon he is today in the horror genre. I find it unbelievable that since this guy has such an you know, iconic face and very kind of a villain face, if you will, he should have been cast more in such roles. He has been playing a lot of baddies, don't get me wrong, but he hasn't had any like amazing movies after Nightmare on Elm Street. He's been in Wishmaster, Urban Legend, anything else notable? I don't think so. Bunch of notable films in B-horror movies, for sure. Uh, yeah. But nothing that you could actually point out as any kind of a real high peak outside of the Nightmare franchise. The Freddy makeup keeps changing throughout the series, and in Freddy 6, the Freddy's dead, it definitely looks... It looks like it's some kind of plastic mold wrapped around his face. Yeah, it, it's bad. Maybe it's also because they don't know how to use the lighting in this film. Anyway, here he looks extremely terrifying in several shots. Freddy's makeup was based on pepperoni pizza. Now I know that as well. It actually makes sense. Perhaps one of the striking things about this villain is that the previous villains perhaps have been a little bit more on the innocent side, as mentioned in the documentary for this movie, like Frankenstein. But Freddy is like full-on evil. Cast and crew. Ju Garcia. Ju Garcia is playing the rod in this movie. His name was in credits changed to Nick Corri, because his ancient was a genius and wanted to change his name to to a pretense Italian name, because at the time apparently it wasn't okay to have somebody, a local Latino. I don't understand why exactly, maybe it was kind of a political issue, have no idea. But so he was like Nick Corri until the early 2000s when he dropped this artist name. Mr. Garcia has appeared also in Candyman 3, The Day of the Dead. <laughs> Also, Atlas Shrugged Part 1. We Were Soldiers as well, but I'm not sure how big of a role it was. He was also in Along Came Polly. Maybe not a major role as well. And then he's been all over television. CSI Miami, CSI New York, a little bit of Babylon 5. And that's all I know about Chu Garcia. Well, if you want to go through his filmography, well, you kind of, uh, I guess, would have to name the high points, which would be the Sodenberg films, the first part of She and Traffic. Okay. Johnny Depp. You can tell us about him. 
Yeah, Depp surprisingly is actually making his introduction in this one. Nothing sad about that. Well, it's it's once again it's one of those cases where you have an extremely prominent Hollywood actor whose first films include a horror movie. This is kind of the same thing as, for example, with Brad Pitt, who also during the beginning of his career did star <laughs> in a horror movie and today tries to forget and bury that moment of his filmography for good. That's the sad part. You shouldn't forget your past. Always remember where you're, you're, you're coming from. There's nothing to be ashamed of, of that face. Everybody has to start from somewhere. What's the big deal? Yeah, horror still does not have that, I don't know, that mainstream oomph in it. Even though it's now maybe getting more spotlight with modern horror films knocking it out of the park, but horror as a genre still is kind of the no-go genres in Hollywood. Uh, I can say what what else is a no-go zone. That would be comedies. 90% of comedies are terrible. Or that's just a lack of my sense of humor in this podcast. But yeah, still, Johnny up here, at the point when he still actually cared enough to learn his lines before the shoot, and interestingly, sharing a team, actually, with Brad Pitt, since they both actually have had their time in Nightmare franchise. But when it comes to horror genre... It's also an extremely milked category. It's a genre that still sells relatively well, whatever kind of dumpster fires you're pushing out, because there's this very fanatic group of people watching this. However, horror is also an extremely hard genre, as is comedy. So it's expected that there are gems only once every five years or so. But yeah, Johnny Depp, Mr. Pirates of the Caribbean, also did Sweeney Todd, Finding Neverland, Secret Window, also the not-so-good Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Chocolate, Sleepy Hollow, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood. Everybody knows Johnny Depp, even if they don't want to. Heather Langenkamp, bam, bam, bada, bam, bam, Heather Langenkamp. He's basically known for Nightmare 1, 3, 7, and then not much else. Hellraiser Judgment was pushed out this year. I guess she's known for that. And the Butterfly Room, Nickel Mountain, that's all. Yeah, sadly, well, she's one of those cases where, well, she always has a place in every horror fan's heart. Yep. And within horror genre, but pretty much everything else she has tried out, you know, other other genres and other avenues of film. They all have been dead ends. I would really like to see her in a more of a major role, but somehow Hollywood doesn't want her. Or she doesn't want Hollywood, who knows. I would believe it's kind of a two-way street on that one. Yeah. Then we have Amanda Wiss. I know very little about her as well. It's actually very hard to find much of a noteworthy career with all apologies for saying this Amanda Wiss but I didn't find really any 
lead roles or any remarkable front roles. I found that she has been in Highlander TV series, couple of episodes of CSI, one episode was it of Dexter, very small role in Silverado, and then there is a movie from the 80s, Fast Times at Richmond High. It's like a comedy drama about sex, drugs, and high school. Then we have Robert Englund, and like I said previously, pretty much known for Nightmare Series and Freddy vs. Jason and Wishmaster Urban Legend. Then we have John Saxon. Yeah, Saxon once again is one of those go-to names when it comes filmmaking. Pretty much in the same way as David Warner, pulling off typically supporting roles here and there and being kind of the elevating force behind any project that he actually deems interesting enough to take. A face that is easy to remember has played Cup at least a couple of times. In Black Christmas from 1974, this Canadian horror legend of a movie. And he said he also, like, he guesses that he made some kind of a bridge between the role that he did in Black Christmas and Nightmare on Elm Street. And I can say that they are really similar characters. He has also done roles in Beverly Hills Cup 3, an extremely awarded and fantastic film called Hellmaster, where people get injected in school and the students turn into mutated students that start to kill people. He has also been in a film called The Last Samurai from 1988, starring against Lance Henriksen. Not to be confused with that Tom Cruise version. Yep, indeed. And roll the celluloid. The film kind of starts with Freddy doing his knife hands. And then there is a random lamb in the corridor. Yeah, the spooky lamb. Yeah. Yeah, the stuff of nightmares. I remember always thinking of this animal as uh, some kind of a short-haired dog. That's how it looked like, at least in the VHS times. (laughs) But it is a lamb. And thank goodness I read the script, because it explains the lamb, kind of. It says that there's a lamb, white and blank-faced, skitters across her path and on into the dark. Well, in this case, to the light, actually. And the script says, no reason why it's there. Okay, Thank you, the mystery of the lamb is (laughs) solved. Yeah. The lamb has been touched a couple of times. It's been brought up every now and then, when the first Nightmare on Elm Street is being being analyzed. And pretty often, absolutely no one can make heads or tails about, about the goddamn lamb. To a point where I remember actually going through a commentary track on this film. And even in there, the makers of the film were kind of a, yeah, we don't know what we were thinking with this lamb. <laughs> Yeah, this, my morning routines today started thinking about this lamb. You know, the film crew actually had to go to hee hee ho some farm, get this lamb, then take it to the set just to do this two-second shot and bring it back to the farm or have it for Christmas. Yeah, to me, it kind of appeared as a kind of a mean joke on the sleep itself or the process of falling to sleep. Yeah, that's 
Yeah. Yeah. The the phrase that you have to count the la- uh, count the sheep to fall asleep. Also, there is, or I believe, there is this theme of perversion that runs throughout this film. Like there is uh, different types of perversions that are shown within this film, and the lamb would be one example of perversion of God. <laughs> this being kind of a symbolizing the Lamb of God. And, oh, yeah, and this Lamb of God being put into, basically on Freddy's turf, something that is mean and violent. Because God is pretty permanent element here on the first nightmare, with, with all the crucifixes that you can actually see throughout the film hanging on everybody's walls, the line five, six, grab your crucifix in the famous nursery rhyme that's been tied to Freddy and even the Freddy's smoking quotation this is God referring to his glove. So I always took that all these elements tie into Wes Craven himself coming from extremely religious family. So basically showing religious symbolism and imagery here on Nightmare in relations to Freddy would be kind of a perversion of those elements and Craven himself tackling his religious upbringing. Yeah, good point. There is something that has made me think that somebody has the idea that when Tina goes deeper into the boiling room, there are kids in the boiling room. But the kids, alleged kids, sound like lambs, actually, when she screams. But those are most definitely not kids. I, I believe it's in the subtitles always. Something about, you know, with the hard of hearing track, calling them kids. Okay, pretty good catch. I never noticed that, since I've always went simply with the Finnish subtitles and not the hearing track. Okay, Tina wakes up and the mother comes to her room and says... You either have to cut those fingernails or stop having such dreams, one or the other. And it's a weird line. Why not do both? Stop having dreams and cut your fingernails. Well, that would solve it completely. (laughs) More interesting language. The kids, Rod, Glenn, Nancy and Tina, approach the school. Rod is having this line about, Hey, up yours with a twirling lawnmower. This was translated in a, some weird random way in Finnish when I watched this movie first in 97 or 98. For sure, I never could figure out what the hell Rod was saying during this scene. But thank God for the hard of hearing subtitles because I have seem to be having hearing problems in this podcast. But yeah, it's hey, up yours with a twirling lawnmower. And the Finnish version must have been Veda Vittupahas. Well, well, yeah, drives the point home. Yeah, close enough, close enough. Työnässä pyörivä ruohonleikkuri sinne jonnekin. Something like that. There's some a little bit awkward dialogue in this film, in this scene. Like when Tina is still screaming towards Glenn, shouting next to everyone. Hey, did you have a nightmare too? Yeah, this felt very much like... Uh, a small production, like an indie film. Now, when I see it after a few years again, you, you can feel that there's this. F- it's extremely 
low-budget vibe, but mostly in a good way. Yeah, this was actually really a low-budget film, even on its time. The New Line Cinema, mostly, if I remember correctly, it was more of a distribution house than an actually production studio. And Nightmare was one of the first, if not the first, film that they actually produced as a production company. I don't know. The New Line Cinema is founded in 1967, but this also confused me because I understood this was released like independently because everybody was turning it down, but like released independently. So New Line Cinema, I'm not sure how that fits into the whole whole picture. But yeah. Well, at least Robert Shea was involved in production of this film, basically Robert was was the person who actually got interested in Nightmare. Yeah, and he and Wes Craven put their asses completely on the line. It was a make or break situation, <laughs> but they both believed in the project so much. Their houses and their fortunes were on the line with this film. Fortunately turned into a major success. And by the Nightmare 3, the New Line Cinema was very well off. Looking at it now, at over 30 plus years of age, now I definitely see how young they are. How cute they are. Like this Tina and Nancy and uh, them holding hands with Glenn character and going outside because they heard a noise. And they look so young. But actually they are not in exact high school age are they well they are 20 plus i think all of them but still the characters that once made me feel like that they are very mature and old compared to me now it's the complete opposite the drawing of knife on glenn this always struck me as weird a bit off that he's drawing the knife and he is plainly invited to the house for the night after that like it would be a norm that you pull your knife at this little aggravation. And then again, it is, it's not that big of a deal. Well... Come on, who wouldn't pull a knife every now and then? Me? Yeah, well, yeah, well, outside of you... The neighbor's grandma? Well, she's elderly, does not count. Okay, so they are, they are young and they are at this knife-wielding age that we all had and we can all relate to. Well, you have to take into account that within this movie, he is the badass. Like, he's the tough kid of the group, so of course he's gonna pull a knife on this instance. Mm. But there are more kind of a interesting lines following him. Morality sucks. Actually, it's kind of a really funny line. But then when you dig deeper, or actually it's just right there, this is actually a weird line throw at this point, because Tina and Rod, they are already together taking care of each other. And Nancy and Glenn, they are in separate rooms. And why? So how is it moral for Nancy and Glenn to sleep separately that night if Tina, Nancy and Glenn are not in the same room even? What's, what, what does it matter? Yeah, well, you know, without morality, Glenn and Nancy could have actually left Tina on her own devices and leave the house and go, you know, go have a bang somewhere else. Instead of staying there, kind of like babysitters. But that's my point. Nancy's throughout this movie, just 
avoiding Johnny Depp at every possible turn. It seems like she's not even remotely interested, in fact. And why are they not having sexy time at this house? At least Tina and Rod are doing it, so I don't see the issue. Maybe both of them are fighting. <laughs> well, you can't be a guard dog and have sex at the same time. You kind of have to pick between the two. And Nancy obviously has picked to be the guard dog for her friend. Well, I know what I would be doing. I, I guess basically all our listeners would know what they would be doing in this situation. Yeah. But we are talking about the survivor girl here with Nancy. So you have to kind of take that into account. And the other girl that likes fatality. Tina tried to wake up Rod, but not enough. Well, it's in the dream, but yeah. But she goes out alone. I guess she cannot control herself in this dream. Well, Freddy is introduced with a bang. He exposes the elongated arms in this forever rememberable scene. Detachable faces and cutting off his own fingers. <laughs> and everything is happening inside, I think, one minute or so. Yeah. With the not at all hokey looking long arms or the Freddy's running when he's chasing Tina down the alley and with Freddy cutting off his own goddamn fingers. You kind of have to admit that Freddy is one of the hokiest and and dorkiest horror icons you could actually have with this introduction. <laughs> it's wonderful. It is so twisted, so... It's dumb as fuck. That's what it is. It's so demented. In fact... No, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. No, no it's not. Pe- people try to, you know... I've heard this argument God knows how many times how this is somehow extremely sadistic and extremely twisted and demented and God knows what else. And it most definitely is not. I will have a few examples on the road for you. We can talk about this. We, we can talk but, about, you know, down the road with this film, about the sadistic side of Freddy and how it works. Mm-hmm. But here on this moment, on Tina's nightmare that we are seeing here, at this point of the film, Freddy is a complete fucking doofus. <laughs> Pulling off the face and revealing the screaming skull underneath it. That actually is something that I can give Freddy credit for. But the long arms, the hokey as fuck running, cutting off your own fingers, you know, at, at that point, at that point you are just being a doofus and making ass of yourself. Well, his face, his voice, his way of doing things is still, there's something extremely creepy about it. And well, it definitely worked when I was 12 and I think it still works. You mentioned the hokey arms a couple of times already here. Uh, the cinematographer, uh, Jacques Heitkin, agrees with you in the sense, at least, that he said that the elongated arms looked ridiculous when they were shooting it. But he was surprised that people accepted the elongated arms so well when the film was released. And sure, it looks a little wonky if you really get down to it. It doesn't take me out of the picture, however. And that's the Freddy's nature anyway. He is being goofy, cutting fingers. But he is also still terrifying in this film. One and two, he's terrifying. 
Yeah, well, but he was not supposed to be ridiculous on this point of the franchise. That ridiculous, mean jokes, not taking your your kills so seriously aspect of Freddy. That was something that was actually brought into the franchise on the sequels. But it's still in harmony here. When you get the three, it gets wonky as hell. That's where it gets out of control. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Well, three is the point where Freddy starts using one-liners. Yeah. Seriously. The point where Freddy starts to have a laugh with his killings and starts to goof around. I would say that point goes to part four. Well, he's always gaming with his prey. He was. Before he kills them. He was, but he was not doing that in goofy way in part one and two. Or at least that the feeling I got was is that that was not the point of Freddy in any way in the first two Elm Streets. It became part of the character after Freddy rose to prominence and after he became this horror icon and something that actually holds the entire franchise on his shoulders. But here we are still talking about the first part, a standalone horror film and its one sequel. And in both of these instances, yeah. Well, it was never to be taken that seriously as we see. Also, the humor is there and they mean to use it. It was supposed to be a little wonky. Here the toying with the victims comes off and comes through Freddy simply tormenting them and taking his long time before actually killing off the victims. Yo, the first two M Streets are actually movies where, where the goofiness takes me out of the picture. For me, it does not feel like it's part of Freddy's M.O. Where it kind of shows up that, you know, the goofy moments are mistakes made by the filmmakers. Well, whichever the case, it's for the benefit of this film. It makes the character what it is. Yes and no. It works at times, and then again, on another instance, it does not work at all. And Tina's Nightmare is one clear example of that. It's my favorite nightmare, exactly because of the goofing around and using the different physical features of this character. The elongated arms, the chasing face, they are having more fun with the character there. And once you get past this nightmare, the first, or well, no, it's, it's not the first, but this, after this nightmare, you never get back to the wide variety of playing with the features of this character. After this dream, Freddy stays relatively similar throughout the movie. At the end, he's, yes, more burned out just before he's sent back to La La Land. But other than that, there's nothing really special happening to his body, except maybe the part where he cuts his stomach near the nipple to unleash some maggots. But then again, after this dream, well, you only get a couple of instances there actually being anything that special at all when it comes to dream sequences and when it comes to the kills. Tina's death is one of the more inventive, more graphical and all around one of the best kills this film has. And not 
in any way best dream sequences. But as a kill, it's inventive, it's challenging, it works in many levels. But after this scene, you only get a couple of dream sequences that are inventive and try different things and try to push the envelope. Most of the film, however, when it comes to the dreams and the kills, feel lackluster downright to it. I disagree. For example, the dream in the school of Nancy is very inventive and very iconic. From yeah, this that is. That is. I give you that. It's one, one of those few examples. Yeah, I, I can name drop you the next scene you most likely would try to offer, which is the bathtub scene, which is also yeah. something that is usually being brought up. But what after those two? After I... those two, you, you get that, what, jail hanging scene, which is just, you know, piece of blanket with some string on it. And Fred Krueger doing the Terminator 2 thing, going through the bars, <laughs> circa 1984. And then there is the whatever Mickey Mouse face that Freddy's putting on through the window. Save me from Freddy. And then Nancy goes through the steps that are filled with whatever mix of oatmeal and what they put in those steps. Yeah, the, st- yeah, the stairs are quicksand. Yeah, that was, yeah, not counting it as inventive at all. I could give you half a remark when it comes to Glenn's death scene, simply due to the gore, but... Uh, what what gore? There's just blood bursting out of this hole. Yeah, precisely it. that. But, you know, uh, outside of those, you are you are stuck with material like, yeah, the, the stairs are quicksand and an arm coming through a blanket and grabbing you and a piece of blanket moving on its own yeah which is kind of cool they just played the video backwards and this is how they did it just pulling the blanket away from him pretty cool it's inventive on how they did it but when it comes to inventive dream sequences when it comes to inventive kills it's none of those things well I do give to you that the dreams get less inventive as the movie goes on. Perhaps especially this dream where... But I do like the dream a lot. But this dream where Glenn is supposed to be watching Nancy while she sleeps. Which is where, you know, Fred is going through the bars. But then it's just kind of the walk through the alley. And then it gets to the Mickey Mouse. It's not as grabbing as the previous ones. It's not playing with the scares anymore so much. Nancy and Fred are starting to get more of a buddies at this point. Perhaps they should have told a little bit less about Freddy. There's this whole little backstory about him. Of course, the sequels just go fully crazy telling every possible thing about this character. But I do enjoy especially the first half of this movie where you know relatively little and he's displayed in extremely creepy lighting and he just doesn't even say much. For example, what, what was it Nancy says in the cellars of the skull? Who are you? Says nothing. Yeah, I have no problem at all with the movie giving Freddy's backstory or with the backstory itself. Well, it's up for debate. They didn't tell that much. Yeah, and you know, you, you have to give something about your monsters. I'm going to pull this conversation now, now way back to our 
Halloween 2 2009 episode, believe it or not. <laughs> There I rhetorically said when there was this oh it was only a dream type of sequence and I argued that when has it ever worked for an audience's favor and you replied something something nightmare on Elm Street something something <laughs> it's funny but if we are serious about it and your statement is being critically examined it doesn't hold water because reason being Elm Street the dream sequences of course are not quote-unquote only a dream because Since the dream is logical continuation of the story, the dreams are integral to the story. It drives the narrative forward, also in a chronological order. But my concern in our previous episode was about a scene or scenes generally that do not drive the narrative forward in any way. Here it does. Yeah, but then again, what you did mention was whenever has dream sequences worked. Okay. Yeah, that's true. But what what I meant was definitely just the dreams that don't go anywhere. Heather Langenkamp is great in this movie. Very convincing acting most of the time. There is this guy leaning against a tree when Nancy leaves the class. Nancy looks at the guy who's leaning against the tree with the sunglasses on. Somebody has said, was it also my brother? that said that this is obviously Freddy, or it was my friend from primary school, can't remember. But I never thought it was Freddy. And actually, if you look, if you're careful here, you can see the same guy at the scene when they are taking Rod down on the ground. So he's one of the cops. So there's your Freddy. I like the student saying the Hamlet part in a creepy voice was uh, forever stuck in my memory. This, oh god, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. The guy got a standing ovation after that performance. Later in the movie, there is this phone that is trying to have French kisses with our lead character. There's a close-up of Nancy with the unplugged phone on ear. This always confused me, this close-up of her face, because it doesn't look like Heather Langenkamp at all. But apparently it is. It looks, though, like one of the guys from the Backstreet Boys or something. It's a weird moment for me. That's how I always see that particular shot. A- anything you want to disclose further here? Uh, uh, no, I guess I just see one part of Heather Langenkamp's face as a Backstreet Boys singer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I can believe that's one of the most nicest things that has been said about <laughs> Heather Langenkamp. I'm so sorry, Heather. <laughs> yeah, you look like that one guy from Backstreet Boys. <laughs> I was genuinely, like, I was convinced that this shot was maybe done during post when they were like, oh shit, we forgot to shoot this this one shot, this close-up of Heather, and let's just use some random guy and get it over with. But <laughs> it's Heather Langenkamp, actually. Well... Yeah, well, maybe someday you can send her a fan mail. <laughs> no, yeah. coming clean on the subject matter and telling her that great fan of your work, especially yeah. considering that you look like one guy from Backstreet Boys. Yeah, there's kind of weird lines again. This from the one of the cops in the house when Glenn has been killed. He says, he's in the John, 
puking since he saw it. And I'm, I'm always like, so what? A hole in the bed and blood around the room. And what's there to see? Just blood, man. Yeah, the, in many ways, yeah. It would be a horrific scene to behold, knowing actually what it is that is dripping from the walls. But at the same time, the aftermath leaves you pretty much with just a room that has red ceiling up. With extremely lot of blood pouring from this little guy. Finally, Nancy pulls Freddy from her dream, and there's a line. Get my dad, you asshole! To the cop on the lawn, not doing anything about anything when she's screaming through the window. I can never forget the Finnish translation, for whatever reason. Maybe the word used here was kind of a funny. Hi, isani perslapi. Yeah, and he decides that maybe he should go and tell the lieutenant. Good idea. Then I'm going to cut to the very ending, because in my old VHS copy, saved from MTV3, there was always a short freezed frame when there's the one of the last shots involving the jump rope girls. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. And just before the shot where the mom is dragged through her window back inside, frames freeze for like a couple of milliseconds. I don't know if you have this in your copy. You know, I'm the freak of this podcast. I I'm addicted of bugs and weird behavior of technical features. But it seems to be fixed on the DVD. Yeah, it's... But if I remember correctly, it was still there on the previous DVD I had. Yeah, hard to say since I'm also going with the box set collection and with those DVDs and on that release there is no freeze frame okay, in that yeah. particular moment. Hmm. Well, it could have been just an error in the tape for airing on the TV channel. Hard to it, say. Yeah, it could be. Oh, okay. About the psychology and symbolism, if any. Well, it's great that this movie, of course, resonates for people because it's like a story of a nightmare. So everybody has nightmares, so everybody's interested to hear more about nightmares. The concept of Freddy itself is quite creative. I would say it's, it's pretty marvelous yeah. how F- Freddy is is the boogeyman that comes to you on your dreams. And as the movie also makes the point, we all have to sleep. There is the invulnerability of facing Freddy eventually. Yeah, and I think... Also, once again, this movie works so well because apparently Heather didn't think she would need to be acting in this film. She tried to bring just herself to the set. And that holds true to some degree to all of the four main actors, the teenagers, or so-called teenagers. Everybody brought their own qualities to the roles. Sometimes not always in a good sense, but because... The Rod, Ju Garcia was struggling with drug addiction at this time, so playing the bad guy in the cell was kind of a, a little bit too easy for him, I heard. Yeah, well, but yeah, yeah. The, this was yeah. the time of method acting, so. Mm. And there's something primordial. I think this is an important point from the documentary. Something primordial about the killing weapon that they are like claws, basically. 
like you would have been like hundred thousand years somewhere in the savanna hunting animals and somebody some tiger jumps to you and eats you with with and kills you with some kind of claws claws and big teeth a hollow empty eyes bare faces it's once again freddy's weapon of choice that being the claw it, it's something that is pretty namestay in horror stories and in the horror imaginary and then there is this up uh, hey nancy no running in the hallway this is extremely disturbing i think because this is a subject that i would love to like come into a, a deep investigation in some of this podcast because this it this taps into the conflicting information conflicting audiovisual information in human being opposites join into one unit that of which we cannot make sense in our heads exactly so there is this school lady combined with the creepy voice of freddy with the claws and the blood so it's the same reason why the exorcist works so well you combine that pretty little young girl well not so pretty in the end with that demonic voice and it's just so unsettling because these pieces do not fit at all and your brain kind of gets lost here what is going on it's always like this when you can't put it quite together when you don't understand something it freaks you out there are also some other tricks that they tried apparently the brain has trouble seeing green and red side by side so that became the sweater of freddy like a painful optical effect apparently in the script it's actually red and yellow stripes but they changed that music fantastic like almost every track can stand on their own really great synth soundtrack the one two fred is coming for you rhyme was already worked out before he joined the film so he kind of built a lot of tunes around this this team especially the run nancy is perhaps my favorite track There are so many, so it's hard to pick what you really would choose as your favorite. Then there is the Telephone Terror track. This is the track that plays when the phone is unplugged in Nancy's room and she turns back and the phone is ringing. This would make for an excellent ringtone, I might add. <laughs> yeah, this rotating room is really nice. They used it, of course, for the scene where Tina is dying. Then they used it again for the scene where Glenn is dying. So people manual were rotating this room and the cameraman was kind of in a like it was described as like an airplane seat attached to the wall and actors would lose their sensation where they were on the map. For example, Tina said she or the actor of Tina, she couldn't move sometimes and had to get out of there. And it was extremely disorienting when Wes Craven is watching you from the window and he would be upside down or whatever the case was. Yeah, the rotating room set, from what I've heard, was surprisingly dangerous to everyone involved. Yes, it was like this uh, Johnny Depp death scene. The bloodshot was done in one take. The, so the room was, of course, upside down. So they pour the liquid from the top, the red liquid, and the guy drops the blood mix and almost instantly gets electrocuted since the blood touched the lamp on the other end of the room and people on top of the house started shaking the structure but somehow 
Unbelievably, they still were able to pour all the blood there. Successfully, the room was kind of shaky. You can see it in the shot. Uh, the blood poured on the lamp and lighting and the people below the house. <laughs> so, But they got it done. It was one of those good old days when you did not have to yeah. worry about job safety and regulations and maybe not even unions that much. But with practical effects. At least they had practical effects. That it is. But in many ways, film has lost a lot. Oh yeah. Imagine this scene, same scene in CGI. Nah. Although, although, okay, I give it to CGI. Like, it's pretty easy to do liquid with CGI. It doesn't have to look bad, necessarily. But still, it gives a certain randomness to it. Natural randomness. Just quickly about the script. Together at the sleepover, the house, there's some extra dialogue that makes Dina laugh and makes her feel better. There's the red-yellow sheets that under which Tina and Rod are sleeping. So this is a reference to Freddy, because it's in the script as the red-yellow guy. The Freddy cuts the plaster when Nancy is sleeping in the room at the sleepover. So, also putting his fingers through the wall. The fingers that fall off from Freddy, they actually go in the script on the ground, and they start to act like bugs coming to Tina's legs. And she freaks out, and then the fingers fall back into place, into Freddy's hand. <laughs> and that's you, kind you, of, you can kind yeah. of see, see the point in script where the budget limitations came into play. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's an argument between March and Lieutenant at the cop office. And there's a wise guy student that cuts off the Hamlet speech. Uh, the surfer guy reads the Hamlet, like, Oh, in the most high and palmy state of Rome. And then the wise guy student says, California's the most high and palmy state, man. Then there is uh, Nancy comes to visit Rod for the first time. I believe this they fully shot this because one short shot of this exists in the original trailer for this movie. So they've probably filmed this. So it starts with Nancy going inside the police office or the police, whatever the fuck it is. And she goes there and asks where her dad is, and then dad comes to scene, and she persuades people to get herself to see Rod in the final cut. You don't see that. It just instantly cuts to Nancy being in his jail cell. And uh, this is the line that is in the trailer from Lieutenant Thompson from this scene. It is, No, I know, thanks to your own testimony, that he was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. Great line, actually. The film was shot pretty much entirely in Los Angeles. There's a deleted scene where Johnny Depp gets out of the hole in his bed in a standing position and then falls on his bed dead with the full body and all intact, just covered in blood. <laughs> I, I kind of see in, in Nightmare and in how Freddy operates in my opinion, there is this running theme of different types of perversion. Like I mentioned before, there is the perversion of God with the lamb and with the this is God scene when he points out to his glove and with all the crucifixes, which are implanted even in the famous Freddy rhyme that runs through the entire franchise. 
Yeah, he is the Antichrist. He kind of is, in a sense that he openly mocks God and mocks the Christian imagery, which is kind of a understandable and also interesting, taking into notice how Wes Craven himself comes from extremely religious family. So in that sense, this boogeyman that is kind of an ultimate entity, as Freddy is presented throughout the film until the very end of the movie, and as a character that stems from Wes's own childhood fears, that creepy stalker at the alley, that school bully. It's kind of easy to see why this mocking of God would be such of a easy and ongoing theme with Freddy. On top of that, there is also, in my opinion, there is there is the theme of perversion of home or safety, which stems from Freddy continuously striking in the characters' homes. Freddy is a creature who, throughout the series, he thrives from the fears of those who live in suburban area. And in their own presence, like Nancy, kind of a showcase this American dream neighborhood with a certain innocence and purity. And then underneath that, there's Freddy, who creeps in through the cracks. And it's kind of a surprising to notice how much of the nightmares seen here in this film actually also take place in the suburban area. Like the nightmare scenes, the nightmare world where Freddy does his tricks, they are the same alleys where the characters actually live. They are the same houses. Like that hellish nightmare landscape, which comes permanent part of the franchise in from, I don't know, maybe part two, but most definitely from part three onwards, is extremely lacking in here. Even the final confrontation, which is the highlight of the film, takes that dream happens in Nancy's own home. She's not transported into the, any another plane. Yeah, even though it's very important for the character and kind of it cannot be avoided that Freddy will come to your home because it, this guy is going to happen in your dreams. So if you're going to pull him out of your dream, it's going to come near your bed to reality. And they are doing this kind of uh, su- suggestive cinematography where you can see that Freddy is kind of suggested to come out from under the bed, like the classical situation where Americans are, I believe, thought that the if there's any monster, then this figurative monster is going to be under your bed and come and get you. And it happens right here. That it is. Breaking that safety of your own home. That is very crucial because you're not safe anywhere if you're not safe at home, right? Right. And it's on its most prominent, I think, especially on Nightmare 1. Also on Nightmare 2, where... Basically, everything that happens in the dream sequences still happens in characters' homes. Yeah. Uh, but on, on Nightmare 2, at the least, there is the last act, which happened in the old steel mill, and which has been kind of uh, transformed into this nightmarish landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And huh, I think uh, there's been a lot of talk about this 
Nightmare 2 in recent uh, years. And there is a documentary coming very soon about uh, the whole gay aspect of part two. And I thought it would be kind of appropriate to talk about this movie near the summer holidays when they have all the pride marches. So it's more fitting for this podcast. Okay, I didn't... I wasn't yeah. even aware that there is that kind of a documentary coming out. Oh, yeah. Seems to be quite a small-scale documentary, but nevertheless interesting. I would still like to add about the whole setting of the first nightmare, and to a degree in the second nightmare, perhaps. And something that also is true in Halloween, the first one. The setting where everything happens is very established. You know the environment, and they stick pretty closely to that area which makes it more interesting to the viewer. Instead of, say, something like Nightmare 5, everything is happening all over the place. And, yeah, you lose a part of that claustrophobia. That you kind of do. Uh, of course, I I do defend this kind of a nightmare landscape thing that comes in on the sequels, since I feel that they are more... At, at least for me, they are more interesting than just seeing all the nightmare sequences taking place in the suburban area. But at, at the same time, I do admit that this American suburb perhaps works better in the sense of giving you the feeling of comfort and being a place that you know. Y- you never know those landscapes. Because they are just running imagination of the filmmakers and set designers. And there is a constant feel of, of surprise because you don't never know what happens in the hellish nightmare landscapes. But you do, like you pointed out, you do know the American suburb. That is a place yeah. that you actually know. And there is a, like with Halloween, there is this heightened feel of tension that stems from the, the fact that what happens in a place that you, at least in some way, you do know. And the final theme of perversion is, which I found from this film, is the perversion of sex. Since Freddy, throughout the film, he's quite sexual being, even though the whole child molester thing was still not brought in into the franchise in Nightmare 1. Here he still is only a child murderer, and not a pedophile. But there are several sexual innuendos that Freddy plays on his victims. Like that, I'm your boyfriend now scene, followed by the French kissing telephone. Or that Tina gets killed right after she has had a sexual intercourse. Or the whole bathtub scene, which is extremely suggestive on how it's actually played out in the film. And it's interesting you note that he was not mentioned as a child molester. Is that actually correct? Yeah, I can only remember that that it was mentioned as a child murderer in the cellar. And at what point does it change then? Nightmare 2? No. I actually am not completely sure on what part it does change. Okay, well, never mind. The only film I can actually go and, and give a... And vouch for that Freddy was presented as a as a child molester Easter remake, and boy does that make an extremely big point on on you know Freddy being a pedophile. It, it's one of the major plot points and major twists of the film. I can imagine that not working so well if you overpronounce it. 
they were kind of careful in the early ones to kind of keep it at bay. They were, and to get into this whole point of them keeping it away, I do remember, for example, part six in the franchise, Freddy's Death. Oh God! Is is extremely at least suggestive on the part of Freddy being a pedophile. Like it's visually given to you, but it's never said out loud. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I, I may be completely out of my element. It's years since I've seen seen the franchise previously, so take my memory as it is. I may completely be blowing smoke out of my ass here, and I cannot pinpoint accurately at what part in the franchise Freddy becomes clearly statedly a child molester. As far as I remember, Freddy has always been pretty much the same, albeit more comedic after part three and especially part four onwards. But he himself has not been explicitly child molestive, just it's been coming from the other actors, the suggestion that he's a child molester, but I think it's been left pretty much at that. Pretty much. And also, if if you watch Freddy's actions throughout the franchise, something to note is that even if you take the whole Freddy was a child molester angle and see Freddy as a child molester, as well as, as a child killer, once the film starts rolling, outside of the little girls in the dream sequences who sing the whole one, two, Freddy's coming for you rhyme, outside of those little kids, you really don't see that much little kids in Nightmare franchise. The people who Freddy targets are almost entirely teenagers. And even though Freddy is extremely sexual in his attacks, you don't see him attacking children directly. So even with the pedophile angle, he's kind of a he's a former pedophile who now has <laughs> shifted in his sexual appetites towards more older victims. Good point. But Freddy's sexuality in his attacks, which you can see even in part one, might be something which eventually led into the whole Freddy was also a child molester thing. Freddy 6 reminds me of possibly the worst one-liner without possibly any kind of real punchline. When he drives over one kid in a dream sequence. And he's like, ha 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 no screaming while the bus is in motion. Yeah, I or, think that's low point of the series. Or, or the fact when, just before that, when the kid's in the house that's falling through the air, opens the door and Freddy is oh. there flying with a broomstick, laughing like the evil witch. <laughs> and, and the infamous I'm playing with power. And I'll catch you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the infamous moment where, in a dream sequence again, Freddy's dropping the pins and the deaf guy and his ears are exploding. Yeah, or, or when he's dry-humping that chalkboard. Oh, yeah. I yeah. really hate, hate this movie, I have to say. It most definitely is a film that has left its mark on cinematic history. But it actually delivered on its promise. Freddy is dead. Indeed, in the sense that this is the low point of the character. He's dead. Overplayed. And out. 
Yeah, and I have to give it to the production firm that, well, at least he stayed dead also for a moment. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't I don't know if, if you could actually see Freddy as a kind of an allegory to rape through his sexuality here. Because like in rape where the act of rape itself can be over quickly. This, of course, shifting from situation to situation, since no rape is the same, but it's a crime that can leave severe uh, psychological damages. Yeah. And what, what Freddy does here, he actually enters the victim's mind and abuses the mind and the victim's identity throughout these tricks that he plays. And in this way, I would say that Freddy's violence is, is maybe is more sadistical than your average lesser villain's violence. Like, for example, Michael Myers. Michael Myers simply stabs you with a kitchen knife and kills you. In many cases, quite quickly, actually. It, it doesn't take long for Michael getting his hands onto you and then, you know, ending your life. But hmm. Freddy, however, takes this pleasure in, in the whole process of, of tormenting his victims for days, weeks, maybe even years, depending on, you know, what part in the franchise you are looking at. And then in the end, the act of killing is quite quick. Like, for example, with the death of Tina here on the first part. The film makes the notion how Freddy has been entering Tina's mind through her dreams for quite some time now. It's never said what is the timeline, but he has been attacking her in dreams for at least some time. And through these attacks, he has shown violence towards Tina's mind, towards her identity, and clearly takes pleasure from this act. And then when he finally kills Tina off, it's quite quick in the end, the actual killing, slashing Tina up does not take in the end that much time. Yeah, he has been gathering the power of fear for quite some time and now he's finally ready to kill, powerful enough to do this. He at least has been getting some type of sadistical glee of enjoyment from the act of tormenting. If we would still stick with the whole sexual angle it's it's kind of like you could see all those dreams as an act of foreplay yeah and then the actual killing is the climax for sure partly it is it's part of his modus operandi to first play with the victims he could have slashed them right there like tina on the street in five seconds but he chooses not to yeah and in vice versa he could kill them extremely slowly, really taking his time, cutting them off piece by piece. But in, instead, he quickly raises them in the air, throw out few cuts, and it's over. But he does make the promise in the end for Nancy that he will kill her slow. So that's also in the cards. That it is, that it is. But that also is, is a notion that brings us to the end of this film since we are talking about the whole killing Nancy slowly and the goddamn third act no, of tell me. Fir first nightmare. Uh, the third act is not flawless, but tell me, if we have something to argue tonight, I'm ready to... 
well, Panther. well, you know, you, you yourself in this made the notion how Freddy is more frightening here than he is in the sequels, where uh, you felt that he's he's being brought up into the comedical levels. Yeah. And many celebrate this first one as, as a kind of a perfect horror movie, extremely frightening horror movie. This is the film that gives Freddy his origins and which makes Freddy horror icon. And I must ask you, when you watch Home Alone movies, Home Alone 1 and 2, you know, do you count them as horror as well? Because goddamn, if the whole third act is nothing but actually a Home Alone comedy part. <laughs> like, like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. How, how, how do you count? How the hell is Freddy in any shape or form a frightening entity in the third act? In the third act, he's not coming through a television and screaming, welcome to prime time, bitch. No. He's actually being pretty menacing, like, I'll kill you slow and now you die. He, he's, he's being a complete fucking buffoon in the third act. He comes through the door and gets sledgehammer to his stomach and falls down the stairs and Nancy's going like, come on, get me, Kruger, come on, get me, I'm right here. Kruger comes and I'll kill you slow, start to approach. Nancy explodes the flashlight behind his head. Freddy falls over, Nancy runs away. I'm over here, Kruger. Come on, get me. The fr- yeah. Kruger follows. Falls yeah. down the stairs. Nancy lights her on fire. Like, uh, are you shitting your pants also when you are watching Looney Tunes? <laughs> the burning of Kruger was quite freaky, at least at the age of 13. It's still much more horror-ish than anything after 3. Or even 3. 3 is a pure comedy. And... Uh, like you pointed out, there are these sledgehammers, and it's kind of a mixture of, of comedy and horror, without a doubt. But unlike you, I don't see it as as much of a problem as maybe you do, or maybe you're just having a problem with my comparison here. But 3 just goes full bonkers with this humor aspect. I sure don't so much have problem with your comparison, even though I like part three extremely much as i pointed out and that is something where the two of us differ what i do have a problem with is that every single time you know the first time i saw this film and the third act started playing i just couldn't believe my eyes i i was like what 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 the fuck is happening here how 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 did it go this way seriously you know someone get west out of his meds and, you know, remind him that he's mo- doing a horror movie. And every single time after the first viewing, when I've seen this film, I just can't help but laugh my ass off when the third act starts rolling in. And only thing that actually combats simple comedical value that the third act is, is the complete, ah, uh, what the fuck is actually happening here? Confusion, which comes with the way how Freddy is in the end taken care of at the very end of the third act, how he is defeated, which is by Nancy just turning her back on Freddy. And then Freddy tries to attack, but stumbles and falls to the end credits or someplace. Yeah, but that's the whole core of the idea of Freddy, that he gets energy from fear of these teenagers. And as soon as 
Nancy gives up that fear when she's had enough. It makes perfect sense in the movie's realm that Freddy must now disappear. And I most definitely do not see any point where Nancy actually could or would find in this movie the moment where she actually gives up on that fear. You can make the argument that the whole Home Alone stuff that you just see before the finishing line of the film is the empowering moment of Nancy. And the whole ridicule of Freddy Krueger is meant to be taken on at the moment when through these acts of buffoonery, Nancy finally gets over her fear of Freddy. But boy, does the movie not, A, bring that into the foreground that strongly. And still, you know, what the fuck? You know, like that was enough for Nancy getting off on her own fear so completely that her sheer act of fearlessness just defeats Kruger. And this actually is something that only works in the interpretation of the events in the sense that when Nancy lays out her plans of getting Freddy Krueger out of the dream world into the real world, which is the whole goddamn plan of Nancy, she actually does not succeed on her plan, but it's still all a dream, which begs the question, how the fuck does Freddy fuck it up so badly? Why does he not simply control the dream so that Nancy can pull off all these stunts? Or if Nancy actually manages to pull Freddy out of the dream world into the real world... She does. Okay, yeah, yeah. You got out of the Freddy, the master of, of dreams aspect of the character. He can't pull that shit off in the real world. But now, now you are in a bedroom with a dude who has fucking knives on his hands. And you defeat him by not fearing being stabbed. Like, knives don't work like that. Ask Michael Myers. Knives don't become blunt because you don't fear to be stabbed. It's Yeah, but he's the dream guy. Well, anyway, yeah, I get your point. But I think you've interpreted the movie completely differently than me. First of all, I am not thinking that this is not a reality. I always took it as reality. And it's the explicit moment where Nancy says that she wants her family and friends again. So that happens in the reality when she defeats Freddy by not believing in him anymore. Turn, turns back, then comes out of the home. But this is now a different day. Maybe the following day, everything has normalized. Or maybe it happens almost instantaneously after that horrific event of the death. Because Nancy has now reversed all the events of the movie, basically. So it's not a dream. But it, it kind of has to be for the bed to swallow the body of her rotting mom. Well, no. Because you have brought Freddy into the real world. But, where... but Yeah, but Freddy's powers are supposed to work in the dream world. Like, like if, if Freddy, Freddy yeah. could pull off that dream shit also in the real world... Then in that case, Nancy's whole I'm not afraid of you, Kruger shit should not work at all because Freddy could just manipulate the circumstances completely in the real world to show Nancy that he is still extremely dangerous. Well, if it was all a dream, then that's highly disappointing. But I prefer to think it as something that kind of the reality and the unreal kind of start to mix when 
Freddy is around. And that's how I just try to think about it. Yeah, yeah, that that could be. Like, like I said, I also never have, have been able to wrap my head around on how the logic works in the act of Nancy defeating Freddy. My biggest issue is perhaps maybe not the return of Freddy in the form of the car. Perhaps I didn't like what was, I believe, the producer's idea to have Freddy swallow the mother back into the house. That was unnecessary. That was, but I'm I'm not holding that so much against the film. It's like you said, my understanding also is that it was simply something that the producers demanded. And uh, it was complete afterthought from Wes, which he had to pull off. Yeah, the whole ending was not very well. I don't know if they ever really had a perfect idea how to end the movie. And you know, maybe the perfect ending would have just been to end it in the front porch with the sunshine. Or before she even opens the door. Yeah, maybe. Or then the perfect ending would have been just ending the film before Freddy turns into Wiley K. Coyote. <laughs> there were two or four different endings that they shot with the car, with Freddy, with Glenn, with the car top, without the car top. They ended up using some kind of a mixture of all the versions, or close to some kind of an amalgamation of all of them. I was trying to find the booby traps and improvised anti-personal devices book, but was unable to find it. The film got its cult status very quickly. Wes Craven didn't want to participate in Nightmare 2 because now the brand was owned by somebody else, uh, the, the Bob, the producer. And Wes and Bob had a, l- a lot of problems during this set, during the filming of the first Nightmare, so they didn't want to continue together. And Wes thought the script for Nightmare 2 was quite inferior, and he would be mostly right. And Heather Langenkamp, as it is understood, was never asked back for Nightmare 2, simply because they decided to go with a completely different story. Also, the director of Nose 2, Jack Shoulder, didn't see that the first one gave any way to continue its story, and he would be quite right with that one as well, I think. Or they just didn't find any way. That's understandable. Mark Patton, the guy from Nightmare 2, auditioned for Nightmare 1 as well, for some role. Premiere and box office. Well, as said, every major studio kind of turned the film down, but they got it released. Craven and England were put on the map. What's your favorite quote? I would have to choose the morality sucks. I would go with get my dad, you asshole. What's your favorite performance? Well, that has to go to Robert England for pretty much making the entire franchise. Same here. What's your favorite scene? I guess that would also pretty much go into... I mixed with two of the dream sequences. It's either the bathtub dream or then the school dream that Nancy has. For me, it's the Tina in the alleyway dream or then it's... Nancy in the cellar of the school. Favorite kill? Has to be Tina. Yeah, well, hands down. Of course it is Tina. I get the other ones are nowhere near. Yeah, Tina. First image that comes to mind. Oh, by the way, what's your favorite hot dog? Do you take it with ketchup or mustard? No, I take it with a rabies vaccination, as is demanded by the local kennel club. 
Sounds like something that Fred Krueger would do. Well, now that I have successfully reset your mind, first image that comes to your mind. Fred pushing himself through the wall. Oh, that that one shot where Nancy is slipping in the bed and Krueger kind of pushes himself against the wall and the wall starts to act rubberly and kind of gives away a little. For me, it would be... I'll just go with the cellar and Nancy. What took you out of this movie? Any stupid scene in particular? Well, once again, the the alley dream with Tina and basically the entire third act. I would say I was taken out by some of the silly dialogue here. Perhaps some of the dialogue with Rod when he appears to the house where they are having the sleepover once again. What pulled you in? It would have to be the more inventive dream sequences. Even though the franchise gets better with its dreams and with its skills as it goes along, still, even in here, when the dreams work, they really do work. Yeah. What pulled me in was the creepy Freddy. They could have played that even more. But yes, creepy shots of Fred Krueger pulls you in every time. Scissors of sacrilege section. Would you cut or change anything? I would actually change the third act, pretty much entirely. I would make Freddy more scary in the third act as well, if possible. Watch test. Did you look at your watch during watching this movie? Not at all. Me neither. Of course, I've seen this like 20 times, but still enjoyed it. Henrik, would you recommend A Nightmare on Elm Street? Yes, I would, but... It would not be the high marks glowing recommendation from me, unfortunately. It's a landmark film. It shows a young filmmaker when he's been given a chance to be creative. Still on high points of his career, it launched the entire franchise. It gave us a horror icon. And there, there is a lot of good to have, even in the first nightmare. But if you would Ask me an entry point into the franchise. I would recommend Dream Warriors over the first one. Do you prefer Nightmare 2 to the first one even? No, no, not at all. Yeah. The whole Exorcist plotline of the second one and the nonsensical ending is pretty much... I really don't like the second one. I would also recommend Nightmare on Elm Street, of course. As you said, it made a horror icon and the chemistry between the characters works tremendously well and it's well shot, expertly done overall and it was well prepared. You can see it in the script and the end result, but you could have played around with a few moments, made them a little more stronger. Henrik, what's our next film? I guess that remains to be determined. Citizen Kane, possibly. Possibly if we just have it in us to tackle another cinematic masterpiece so soon. Yeah, I don't know if Citizen Kane is not a cluster fun of a moment or like Apocalypse Now. You can talk without sacrificing your entire being in that episode. Thanks everyone for joining us. This has been the Flick Lab once again with Nightmare on Elm Street. We hope to cover the other nightmare or some of the nightmare movies we could cover 
at some point, but not right now. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and all the other sources of great knowledge and wisdom. Anything to add at this point, Henrik? Or should we exit the premises of the sanitized laboratory? I guess we can close down the lab once again. Excellent. Everybody have a great time. I most certainly will. And I have been the self-promoting asshole Karri. And my colleague is Henrik. Or Henrik. Bye-bye. Sweet dreams. Don't let the bed bugs... Oh, that doesn't work now. Bye. This worm, phallic worm.